Hello and welcome to the MetHerm Podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. And in this episode, we are exploring the influence of the sky on ancient Ireland and the many structures that can be found on our landscape from that time. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Frank Pendergast, who's one of Ireland's leading experts on the alignment of its ancient structures. So Frank, we'll, we'll be talking a bit about megalithic structures in this episode. So maybe just to, to set some context, what do we mean by megalithic? Well, megalithic literally means large or big stone. And it translates as that. And the characteristic of megalithic architecture, and I guess that's where we're going with this talk, is structures that are built made of large stones. And in prehistory, in the early prehistoric period, large stones were the feature of the monuments which were built. Unlike later in prehistory, when you move into the Bronze Age, where there was a shift from using megaliths, megalithic stone architecture, to timber-built structures. So that is the essence of the monuments that we're going to talk about first. What, what kind of time period are, are we referring to when we, when we talk about the, the megalithic uh, structures? If we begin with the Mesolithic, which translates as the Middle Stone Age, that began about 8,000 to 4,000 BC. And so if you add 2,000 years on to that, you get before present. But let's, let's talk in terms of BC because everybody's familiar with that sure. time scale. So the Mesolithic was from about 8,000 to 4,000 BC. And in that period, um, I Ireland was occupied by humans who operated not as farmers, but as mobile hunter-gatherers. So they were on the move, um, in a sense, taking opportunism of where they were, along the coasts and rivers mainly, where there was ample supply of fish, particularly, and no doubt game as well. And they left very ephemeral or sedentary evidences of their settlements. And, you know, so no structures are really built other than timber structures, which have long, long since disappeared. So broadly, that's our first time period for human evidence on the island. And the population, of course, then is very much guesswork, although as we move into the Neolithic, um, we get a better handle on how many people might have been in Ireland. So moving from the Mesolithic to the Neolithic, uh, that begins about 4000 BC and runs all the way up to about 2500 BC. So you've got a period of about, say, 1500 years um, for the Neolithic. And Neolithic means New Stone Age. Now, the big excitement about the Neolithic is that you have uh, farming, which began in Ireland about 4000 BC. And you have the settlement of people into communities, which are identifiable by their in a limited number of cases, they're timber built houses. So they built their houses out of timber. And we know of about 120 of those, which is incredibly small, mainly because they've again disappeared because of the nature of the material. But these were rectangular houses built throughout the island and discovered mainly by motorway and projects which are development led and require excavation. So it's by accident we find them but in association with their buildings, 
they also built stone monuments. And what we know is that as society developed and became established and hierarchical, they began to develop their belief systems. And part of that would have been the erecting of megalithic architecture. And we can only go to the Boyne Valley or to Sligo and realize very quickly that we are very well endowed with these large burial structures, which are the megalithic tombs with which we're all familiar. Yes, so I was just going to say we, we seem to have a wealth of these megalithic structures here in Ireland. And through researching these monuments, archaeologists have been able to see the influence of the sky on, on these constructions, I think most notably in terms of alignment with, with the sun. And we have some excellent examples here in Ireland, don't we, of, of solar alignment? We do. And interestingly, um, even if you go forward into the medieval period, Churches and abbeys and monasteries were aligned east-west predominantly with a focus on the rising sun for religious reasons and, you know, all to do with the day of judgment. Uh, but that's in the medieval. But if we go back into prehistory, um, we now have studies on quite a number of the megalithic tombs in Ireland undertaken by not only uh, archaeoastronomers, but archaeologists as well. And patterns begin to emerge and evidence comes out of that. And what we're interested in is looking at the direction in which these structures are aimed at or pointed at. And it's fair to say that when megalithic architecture was constructed on the ground, it wasn't generally done in a random way. There was a purpose to aligning and orientating these structures. And we talk about, for example, a good one is take Newgrange or indeed any of the passage graves across the island. And you have a passage which enters from the outside into the burial chamber. And then it widens out into a tomb inside, a burial chamber, sometimes with recesses. That gives you an axis. And, a, and an axis indicates direction. An axis is architecturally the fundamental line when it comes to building anything. So you can think of a church, you can think of a house, you can think of many structures where the axis is critically important. And in the megalithic tombs, it was no less so. And the first act probably in a small number of cases would have been to align these structures to face either the rising sun or the setting sun at particular times of year. Now, straight away, I would say that only a small proportion of our prehistoric tombs exhibit clear or strong or reliable evidence of being aligned on the rising sun. And indeed we'll shift on to other astronomical bodies in a few minutes. Uh, but let's deal with the sun for the moment because the, the sun is the supreme cosmic body in the sky. And we'll all agree on that. And it dictates our climate and our seasons and our, I suppose our very ability to survive in terms of settlement and crop growing and, you know, when winter comes, when spring comes, when summer comes, these are all critical times of the year and, and awareness is required of those. So aligning some of the structures on the rising sun or the setting sun does make sense. You mentioned Newgrange there and the fact that it's aligned with the rising sun and that's at the, the winter solstice, so the, the shortest day of the year. 
is it is it most commonly that these tombs are aligned with solstices or are there other sort of solar events that we're seeing where, where we have this alignment? Okay, well, again, just staying with the sun for the moment. If you can imagine your location and if you were to spend every morning of every day in a year just sitting and waiting for dawn, you would notice that the sun goes through at our latitude a swing on the horizon of almost a quarter of a circle just under 90 degrees. That changes with latitude, of course. If you're on the equator, it goes up and down the horizon far less. And the further north you go, the more that movement of the sun, and we call it apparent movement, because it's us being on the earth observing the external body outside the earth. Um, it goes through a massive swing between winter solstice occurring in our calendar on December the 21st, all the way northwards, through the equinox position, which is the middle point, all the way north to the summer solstice in the northeastern sky and northwestern if it's setting. So you have this dramatic change in solar direction through the year. Now that would have been observed and readily understood because it was critical to survival, if nothing else, and especially agriculture. And in terms of the way that the sun is interacting with these structures. I mean, you mentioned Newgrange, how, for example, it, it the sunlight passes down through this axis, through this passage, and perhaps illuminates a chamber. Is that is that the common interaction? Do we get, do we see other things in terms of maybe shining on an engraving or casting shadows or things like that? Yeah, there's a hell of a lot going on. Um, the sun is responsible for a lot in terms of the, let's call it the phenomenology of what happens at these places. Um, so the first thing would be illumination from the rising sun. So we need to think about horizon and the emerging solar disk rising out of the horizon at a particular time of year. And as it does so, it brightens rapidly. And as is the case at Newgrange and some of the other tombs, the sunbeam or solar light will penetrate down the axis of the tomb through the entrance passage and illuminate inside the burial chamber for typically 15 to 20 minutes just after sunrise. And then the chamber will darken again as the sun climbs in its azimuth and altitude, or in other words, its direction and its height in the sky. And it is that phenomenon of illumination of the burial chamber uh, that is so important in the case of some of the tombs. And that's telling us an awful lot about the meaning of these tombs and how, I suppose, religious beliefs or what we call worldview uh, or a cosmology is another way to put this, an ancient cosmology, how people understood their place in the world, their relationship with the sky, their relationship with the seasons, and their relationship to the movement of the heavenly bodies up and down the horizon as you go through the year. You mentioned there, I guess, one of the, the reasons why they would be doing these alignments. It's, it's a lot of effort, obviously. It's, it's related to this idea, or we can infer that it's related to their belief, perhaps afterlife beliefs, the reason that these tombs would be aligned in this way. Were there other potential aspects where they may be used for measuring time? To a certain extent, time, well, to a big extent, time comes into this. And there is a saying in archaeology now that time is power. And if you understand time, you have power. 
And if you're in a prehistoric society, which is very hierarchical, farming based, um, there will be, in a sense, an elite within that society, there must have been, who would have understood and retained and have possessed the knowledge about celestial events. And we think insofar as we can look backwards over those vast time distances without any written record, and that defines prehistory, by the way, prehistoric means before the written word, and that is different dates in different parts of the world, depending on civilizations and how they developed. But in Ireland, broadly, the historic prehistoric boundary comes with the arrival of Christianity. So you're talking about in the fifth century. So anything before that, you're into the Iron Age, the Bronze Age, and the Neolithic. So understanding um, time would have been, I think, and you know, embedded in all of farming throughout that time. It does not take a genius to realize that the sun is moving up and down the horizon, is changing its direction as you do so. So understanding the direction of the sun in terms of time and timekeeping wouldn't necessarily have been the most important thing here because climatic factors would have come into this, uh, seasonal temperatures, patterns and changes of growth. All of these are indicators of time. So we think that the rising and setting of the sun per se wasn't used as a necessarily a timekeeper, but understanding its motions was very much embedded in power and knowledge. What we do think was the case is that the direction of the rising sun was important in terms of the burial tradition and the afterlife and death and where the human spirit went to in the next world. And that brings in something very interesting. Um, what's called the worldview or cosmology at that time, they would have perceived their world as a threefold model. And by that, I mean the landscape in which they lived, the dome of the sky over that landscape, and then the underworld beneath. Now that was their perception. Whereas today we have an absolute understanding in astronomy of where we are in the um, environment, in the universe, in space, we know all of these things. We understand the nature of the sun, the stars and the planets and exactly where they are and what they are. But in the prehistoric mind, that is not the case. So they would have viewed the world as a tripartite model, as we call it in anthropology and cosmology. And it is the upper dome, it's the landscape and it is the underworld. Now, if you think about the sun as the supreme cosmic body, which regulated life, I guess, then aligning the burial places of the dead to face the rising sun at a key time of the year at solstice, I think is very much part of how they might have perceived linkage between the afterlife, the dead, where they went, and perhaps the power of the sun, which was probably regarded as a deified body. To them, this was something stupendous, enormous, incredible. But it happened every day, and it moved day on day, up and down the horizon, until you get to solstice. That's a summer solstice, winter solstice. And of the two, probably the winter solstice emerges as the more focal and more interesting time of year. And what do we mean by solstice? Solstice translates as stand still. 
And what's happening is day on day, the sun is moving gradually southwards, slowing down as it does so each day until about a week before solstice. It hardly seems to move in terms of sunrise direction day on day. And then you get to the 21st, as we now know, and it stops theoretically on the horizon. And then the next day or a couple of days, it starts to move back again. So that, sol uh, that solstice position is the turning point. And it is that turning point, not so much as an indicator of time, but of the symbolism of what it's doing. And it is returning to its position going northwards, heading away again up towards summer solstice. That summer solstice ritually throughout cultures across the globe seems to have emerged as something of greatest significance and importance. You mentioned the sun there as being sort of the ultimate celestial body or, or the sort of almost a a likely a deity for these people. But do we see alignments with, with other celestial bodies, for, for example, the moon? There are, and it's only when you get into the Bronze Age. So the Bronze Age kicks in about 2500 BC. And then you're into a different kind of monument. So you're moving away from, say, burial tombs. And burial tombs, most people will be familiar with, are round cairns, sometimes delimited by curbstones with a passage into the burial chamber. And these covering cairns can be quite large, Newgrange being the biggest and Nelth and Delth in the Bowen Valley. And County Sligo has numerous tombs, and we can only think of the summit of Knocknaray and the gigantic cairn, Maeve's Cairn up there. These were stupendously large structures. But when you get into the Bronze Age, um, the form of megalithic architecture is changing. They're no longer building stone-built tombs, but rather they're building a different kind of monument. And these would be stone circles, particularly, and also what are called stone row alignments. So these are upright megaliths set in a line, typically three, four, five, or seven of them. And that gives you an axis as well. And sometimes the stone circles themselves have an entrance and that can be an axis also. So we can look at these structures, the stone circles and the uh, stone row alignments. And there is evidence that in the Bronze Age, there was a lunar interest. And I always say that the moon is so much more difficult to understand in terms of its apparent movement in the heavens. In fact, it was Isaac Newton who famously said, if you ask me any question, don't ask me about the moon, it hurts my head. And that's coming from a scientist. <laughs> and it hurts my head too, because um, when you think about the sun, the sun's motion is simple in comparison to the moon's motion, which is hugely complex. So how did people perceive the moon and its rising and setting and its direction? There is the lunar phase cycle, which is the monthly cycle we're all familiar with. We go from full moon to new moon, and then we have the crescent waxing and waning. And that defines a very nice, simple 29, 30 day basis for keeping time. And in a lunar month, it's easy to look at the sky and say, we are a quarter way through the moon. We are halfway through the month rather. Um, so the moon as a timekeeper is a very useful device. But in terms of its rising and setting positions, it is quite hard to predict its position on the horizon in comparison to the sun. Nonetheless, 
And there is evidence coming out from the study of, say, a large number of sites, and particularly in Scotland, where stone rows have revealed that there would have been perhaps a lunar symbolism attached to aligning these structures to where the moon rose in a particular way at a particular time of year. And the moon cycle is complex, as I said. There are extremes in terms of its uh, limits, unlike the sun, which has the same limit, more or less, through the year, up and down, winter solstice, sun solstice, the moon, not so. Nonetheless, there are hints and strong hints supported by uh, measuring large numbers of sites, such as stone rows, that there may have been a strong understanding and an awareness and an interest in aligning these structures to the moon. So then you look at other bodies in the sky and what else is there? Um, Absolutely. Well, I, I believe one of the, the sort of interesting or, or more remarkable structures we have in Ireland is at Lismullen in County Meath, and, and that's aligned with the stars. Is that correct? Yeah, the, the Lismullen, just for our listeners, um, is an Iron Age uh, structure. So you, it was built around, you know, after 800 BC, and it was occupied for perhaps a sh very short period of time. It was discovered under the M3 motorway by sheer accident, by careful archaeological excavation. And when they advanced the M3 near Tara, uh, they discovered in the ground these long gone sockets of where timber posts would once have been. And there was coloration difference in the soil that allowed the archaeologists to spot these small circular holes. And when they excavated the site, nearly 400 of these post holes uh, were recovered, mapped. And then that allowed the archaeologists and myself to look at this data set. And the modeling of it revealed it to be three concentric timber rings. The outer two were nearly 80 meters across in diameter, so huge. That's twice as large as the largest stone circle, which is up in Beltane in Donegal, or sorry, in Loch Gur, and there's an, an equally large one up in Donegal. But this timber closure was massive for its time. And importantly, it wasn't used for burial. There were no habitation structures inside the perimeter. And it also had an avenue delineated by post holes leading from the outside in. So here we go again, an axis from the entrance, which was emphasized by much larger post holes, into an inner sanctum, a smaller circle with a 16 meter diameter. And we think from the analysis that I've been able to undertake is that the alignment of that avenue looking from the inside out was just north of east. So it didn't fit sunrise at the equinox, which we're all familiar with in March and September. And the candidate that came up and emerged was the rising of the Pleiades cluster. Now, the Pleiades, also known as the Seven Sisters, is a reasonably prominent or bright grouping of stars. It's not a constellation. It's a cluster, and what's called an open cluster. And people who look at the night sky in wintertime often ask me, what is that? Because they notice it. They wouldn't notice a constellation, but they'll notice the Pleiades because it's a cluster, a grouping, and it's beautiful. And um, its form is very small. And it would have risen out of the horizon and transited over the entrance of this 
timber enclosure at a time of year which is significant after the summer harvest and before winter and it is a seasonal thing and that has led archaeologists to i think sensibly conclude when you eliminate all the evidence and at least consider all the evidence that this was a place for gathering for ritual and it is therefore very likely a temple open to the sky but with a clear avenue aligned on the Pleiades coming out of the horizon, transiting the entrance gate. And that would have been a, a, a phenomenally important spectacle in terms of its usage annually, perhaps for a period of weeks. There may well have been some kind of ceremonies or rituals conducted. And there were other features inside the circle which indicate there was fire burning going on in a pit just outside the inner enclosure. So we think it's an avenue and it was involved with procession. And these are all things which we can interpret from the archaeology as well as the astronomy. Uh, these structures show a sense of the understanding that these people would have had for movement in the sky and, and also the, the seasons and the passage of the year. Did their construction or did their, their features also help with this understanding? Is there a suggestion that they may have been ancient observatories or something like that yeah the word actually that's a good uh, phrase to bring in observatory because observatory uh, implies or has a connotation which in astronomy means precision and accuracy and tracking and i think it's important to get very clearly across is that these ancient structures were not observatories in the sense that we now understand the term but rather they were places for ritual gathering, which had a relationship with the cosmos. And it had a relationship with the appearance or the disappearance of specified astronomical bodies, be it the sun, the moon, or particular stars in the sky. And so from that point of view, we should not use the word observatory, but rather these were places of ritual and assembly which had a relationship with the sky, which have, would have been easily understood by repeated observing and an awareness of what's happening on the horizon. And it would not have taken any great uh, degree of scientific understanding or other kind of tracking or technology to do that. Because I know, for example, from experience that if I know that there's a site which has an axial alignment, such as Newgrange, that's a good example, and you know where the sun is going to rise at the winter solstice. And what am I using? I'm using distinctive features like tree patterns, for example, or tree growth on the horizon as a marker. When that sun has gone northwards and then comes back 12 months later, I can anticipate day on day, several weeks out, where the sun is rising. It's not there yet, it's got another bit to go. And then I'm using reference markers on the horizon which are natural now that could be a, a mountain ridge a mountain valley or it can be even distinctive tree lines so anything that's distinctive on the horizon would have been used as a reference against which to mark the movement of these celestial bodies and that's one way um, so i think you know to infer that in prehistoric times that they were using any kind of precision technology 
is to, in fact, I think, mislead the, uh, you know, the, the, the listener, but rather simply based on accurate and remembered observations of their own environment, they would have understood the sky. And, you know, any farmer worth their salt will tell you, I know when spring is here, I know when winter is coming, because they're observing changes in their own environment. And so it was in prehistory, I'm quite sure. So is it likely that, that some of these structures uh, may have been in, in, in a period of construction for a number of years, say, for example, like alignments would have been noted at a site over the course of a year or two, and then the construction was made, or maybe these were pre-existing sites where people were attending for ritual purposes anyway, and then constructed a tomb? Yeah, I mean, um, and again, if we go back to the Neolithic now, and we go back to burial tombs as an example, um, and if I take the passage tombs, because there are different types of monuments according to the architecture, and the passage tombs of which the ones in Sligo and in Carrowkeel and in the Boyne Valley are the prime examples, they are a different type to two other types, the court tombs and the portal tombs, built by people we think of different traditions and belief systems with different burial rituals probably. But if I take the passage tombs, in Ireland, the evidence is very clear that they clustered them in groupings. So we can think of Carrowmore and Carrowkeel and Sligo, where there are high concentrations of tombs which are closely spaced. And then you go to the Boyne Valley, the same thing happens. If you go up into the Wicklow Mountains, you have what is called a more dispersed cluster. Nonetheless, they are groupings. So they tended to site these places, their burial tombs, in locations where uh, they grouped them, number one. Secondly, with the passage tombs, they chose elevated ground. So the second thing in site selection is to place them in higher ground, probably higher than where people lived. And we only have to look at Caramore or Carrowkeel in particular, and you stand below these mountains and you look high and you look up, as I have done, and you say, how in goodness name did they get the megaliths to build these monuments at such inaccessible places? So massive effort was invested in where to locate these tombs. And then when you think about the impact these tombs have on the visibility in the surrounding landscape, these were built prominently on high ground to be visible from afar. And as I've been able to show from um, other scientific studies that I've done, also intervisible. So there was a high degree of being intervisible with each other going on in localities as well. And then they also decorated the facades of some of these uh, passage tombs with quartz. And quartz is that gleaming white stone, which is symbol symbolic of so much in prehistory. Um, white quartz was revered and it had particular religious qualities, we think, and they would have gone far and wide to collect the quartz, transport it, and to decorate the frontage of their monuments. There's argument about whether the quartz was used as a platform to walk on, or whether it was a facade. I go with the facade theory. It makes sense to have the quartz studying the frontage of a tomb, and it glows in the sun, even in dull light, it becomes much more visible. So placing the tombs in locales is a critical factor in par as part of the whole burial tradition. And also, if you think about it, 
uh, why go for height? In particularly the passage tombs, proximity to the world above, that overarching sky where the deities would have been believed to have resided, where the spirits of the dead would have been believed to have gone. So all of these are factors. Uh, no one of them can be thought about on their own. They're all intermingled. They're all part of a collective belief system connected to the cosmology of how people perceive their world. In terms of the alignments of, of these structures, due to changes, say, in the, in the Earth's orbit and its axis and things like that, I would imagine some of these alignments have, have shifted since they were originally constructed so that maybe the alignments are no longer true to what they're originally intended. Is it possible to reconstruct what the night sky would have looked at at the time that they were constructed? Yeah, very much so. Um, we have the massive benefit of tremendous science now. And in astronomy, you know, all our planetarium software can model the changes that have taken place in the sky in terms of the apparent position of the sun and the stars over time. And there's a famous set of um, discoveries made by a, a, a scientist called Milankovitch in the 1950s, who developed all these theories about the orbital mechanics of the Earth, if you like, in space. And he was probably the first to theorize that the Earth's axis of rotation isn't static in space. So we know the Earth goes around the sun in a plane, we call it the ecliptic plane, and the Earth's axis is tilted with respect to that plane by about 23 and a half degrees currently. And that's well known. And we know now as a result of Milankovitch's theories, which have been validated by many scientists over decades, that that tilt is not static. It's actually nodding left and right um, by about a half a degree. And that tilt is known as obliquity. So it's oblique to the plane of the equator or the, the, the orbital plane. So that's one tilt. And the other one is precession. So there are two things happening to the Earth's axis in space over time. There is the obliquity cycle and the precession cycle, each of which have 26,000 years and 40,000 years duration. Now, those changes may appear small to somebody just looking at the uh, degree change, but in terms of astronomy, what that means is that if we take the stars, for example, precession, which is like a wobbling of the axis, like a, a, you know, in a conical way around the plane of its orbit, precession causes the apparent position of stars in the sky to change dramatically over time. So if we take the Neolithic 3000 BC to now, that's a time interval of 5,000 years, precession changes where and what you see in the sky compared to now, compared to then. And astronomy and planetarium software can model all of those changes and accurately do it. So when we build a landscape model and want to investigate tomb alignments, we can take into account the changes for the stars and we can also take into account the changes for the sun positions as a result of precession and obliquity. And what that means is that when we measure alignments now, for a tomb or a stone circle or a stone row, we can model in what would have been on the horizon 
at the time the monument was built as distinct from what you see it now. And that gives us tremendous power to interpret the alignment of monuments. I guess one of the other big differences in the night sky now in comparison to the time that they were being built is that um, several thousand years ago, the night sky and the stars would have been far more visible. They, they certainly would have been. And when we come to um, light pollution and the degree to which the sky has brightened over time in the last number of decades, um, I, I think it's best to approach this topic in terms of um, what was visible in the sky and the clarity of the sky in prehistory compared to now. Um, it wasn't really until the advent of artificial illumination, you know, by humans, I suppose in the 1700s onwards, but dramatically so in the 20th century, that we begin to lose visibility of the star sky, particularly. Not a problem for daytime, obviously, because as soon as you hit dawn, your sky is bright and the moon has disappeared from view mostly, although you can see the moon during the daytime, depending on where you are in the phase cycle. Um, but it's only when you get to nighttime sky viewing that the problem becomes apparent. The reason being that we have illuminated our world to an extraordinary degree. And if you look at images of Earth from space, and you see the nighttime imagery of Earth, you can pick out civilization from the glow on the ground. And photographs and images are coming down all the time to us. And that gives us the wherewithal to study planet Earth and the degree to which it is illuminated at night. And the trend is discernibly upwards. And it is a, a worry and it is a concern. Now, we all have to live, we all have to exist, and we all need illumination to do what we do. I mean, we have become a 24-7 world in a sense. But most of Europe and the United States and Canada is now so heavily light polluted that there are very few places where you can actually see a pristine night sky anymore. Now, all of that data has become available through polar orbiting satellites in particular, which have special sensors, which can monitor and measure brightness at night on the ground. Incredibly, the sensors are so sensitive, they can actually pick up the illumination from a street lamp. I mean, that is extraordinary. Wow. Yeah. That data is now available and continually feeds into a light pollution map of the world effectively. And those are all available to us as tools to study how things are changing. And year on year, decade on decade, the world is getting brighter by percentage points. And what that means is that the modern human can no longer easily see a pristine sky unless they travel to areas of dark sky uh, protection. And there are a few in Ireland, which we know in Ballycroy and down in Kerry, and there's one or two more coming. And then internationally, there's a big push on to try and create these dark sky reserves. I was just going to say that we're coming to a point now where we are looking to preserve dark sky locations, similarly to how we have nature reserves, because they are things that are precious and under threat. So we feel a need that we, to protect them. And as you've mentioned, we have um, 
we have two parks in, in Ireland at present in, in Ballycroy and in Kerry, Ballycroy and Mayo and in Kerry as well. The fact that the, the night sky, say when these structures were being built, was so much more present. I mean, it, uh, it helps you to understand why the night sky had such a strong cultural influence at that time. Very much so. It's now estimated that in a pollute, I mean, if you're in the center of Galway or Dublin, uh, even in wintertime in the city center location, all you will see is the moon and a select small number of bright stars, the very brightest. Um, even if you move outside of the cities, light pollution travels extensively. And you may see, if you're lucky, up to a few hundred stars. In prehistory or in truly dark sky locations, several thousand, five to six thousand stars are what you would expect to see. Now, the critical thing here is that if we conserve the dark sky in areas where we can do so, and I like to campaign in terms of conserving the dark, the dark sky at areas of archaeological importance, such as Carrowmore, Carrowkeel, Boyne Valley, Loch Crewe, there are a handful of places where we really should be paying attention to light pollution. And the reason is that at these locations, if you are situated in a dark night in winter, you are re-experiencing exactly what our prehistoric ancestors would have observed and experienced also. So there's a lovely word, immutable. There is an immutable link between being in the places which are dark sky protected, which are of archeological importance, and how that connects back to our very ancestors 5,000 years ago and exactly what they would have seen. Albeit the sky, the sky is slightly shifted because of precession. Nonetheless, that experience and that linkage is so important. So therefore we do need to conserve and minimize light pollution insofar as we can. I, I spent a, a crisp winter's night in Ballycroy some time ago during the winter and it was absolutely beautiful. It, because it's such a dark location, you can see such clarity of the stars. But after maybe an hour or so, things started to turn a little bit watery. And then it was the inevitable approach of some clouds, which we're mm. obviously very familiar with here in Ireland. So it's, mm. it's not just light pollution that you're contending with when you want a clear night sky. Um, and cloud is something that we, uh, we have to contend with also as well. Yeah, and that's uh, of great interest to me as well, because um, just to make the point, um, Last year, last winter solstice uh, 2020, and then the one just gone 2021, we were running a scientific project at Newgrange to film and record the illumination of the burial chamber over a period of about 20 days before solstice and 20 days after, so a 40 day period. And we had installed roof mounted looking downwards cameras, nadir pointing cameras and video cameras. Last year, in, sorry, in 2020, the winter solstice, we had about a 53% success rate in terms of clear skies, cloud-free over the 40-day period. This time, 2021, just gone, 3%. Wow. And it was an utter and miserable failure by comparison to the previous one. So luckily we started the project in 2020. The reason we were able to do it was because of the pandemic, the chamber was closed to the public. So we used the opportunity to record and to analyze in a way that was never done before. Something that I've noticed going out, looking at a clear night sky is, is 
how frequently you will see satellites passing overhead and uh, particularly in, in in the last year or two with the launch of uh, the Starlink constellation this is a, a SpaceX uh, project to provide uh, broadband globally including like remote locations where you can't have uh, cable-based uh, systems things like that so it's a you know a positive development however there's a huge number of satellites I think there's something like 1700 have already been launched and plans for tens of thousands of these really small satellites going overhead hmm. so for for people who are trying to study the night sky and maybe doing uh you know exposures of the night sky or, or looking at, at these at these uh, movements um this could be quite disruptive absolutely and whereas that does get away from our focus on the prehistoric and the ancient skies uh it is very much a 21st century issue um not so much for the sort of work that I'm researching, but clearly for astronomical societies who, you know, embark upon campaigns to photograph what's out there. And then they have this to contend with. Um, and it's only at its infancy, as I see it. And as you rightly say, um, you know, the benefits for humanity in terms of broadband inter or internet dissemination uh, to parts of the world that otherwise would not have it, has enormous benefits, you know, societal, commercial, economic, but nonetheless, um, it is an environmental pollutant if viewed from a different perspective. And it's hard to see how this could, can be stopped or mitigated or contained. Um, I have no experience of it at the moment, although some of my colleagues have seen the Starlink cube satellites. They're quite small. Nonetheless, they reflect and their altitude is such that, you know, they will be visible as a like a train going across the sky that's right or yes, point yeah. after point after point and you know if that becomes um shall we say in terms of the predicted numbers of these uh cube satellites going up uh an issue it could be a real serious pollutant in terms of the natural sky to which we all are entitled and we all live under one sky and it's you know a unesco issue as well you know so it's not just local astronomical societies at a much higher global level, UNESCO has extreme interest in preserving all of these um, aspects of humanity and culture. And that includes the, the night sky. And it is the preservation of the night sky that becomes, I think, the focal argument here and what we can do to protect it. So we have ground level light pollution as one source, which, you know, I think in terms of um, areas which are developed, you know, there's little we can do, you can't reverse lighting, but this is a new phenomenon and a new threat in the upper atmosphere, shall we say, and uh, that's one to watch for the future and one to engage with, I think, in terms of the people who have the most vested interest in minimizing that kind of pollution. And it's a balance, like everything else, it's a balance between society's need for technology and advancement versus its impact on the environment well from the the prehistoric relationship that our ancestors had with the sky to spacex starlink satellites i think we've, we've covered a really interesting and, and broad width of our relationship with the night sky and it's been a, a really interesting conversation so many thanks again frank for coming on today and, and for speaking with us it's been my pleasure That brings us to the end of this episode. Thanks again to Dr. Prendergast for joining me this month. If you've any thoughts or comments on this episode, 
be sure to get in touch on the MetAaron or RTE social channels or drop an email to podcast at met.ie. You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally get your podcasts and do check out our previous episodes. Thanks for tuning in and I look forward to speaking to you next month. Take care. The Met Aaron podcast is presented and researched by Dr. Noel Fitzpatrick. Production and editing is by Jamie Lanagon.